Welcome to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival and to the Population and Transportation Panel. I am Amon Bethija, political editor for the Texas Tribune and the Tribune's former transportation reporter. Uh, some quick housekeeping first. We're planning for this conversation to be an hour. We'll save about 15 minutes for the end for audience Q&A. Uh, this panel is supported by the Texas A&M University System. Those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining this event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. Finally, please silence your phones. And if you want to tweet, remember the hashtag is TripFest17. Uh, and now I'm pleased to introduce our guests. I had a different order. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> to my immediate left is Republican State Senator Robert Nichols, has represented Senate District 3 since 2006. He serves as chairman of the Senate Transportation Committee and also sits on the Senate Administration, Business and Commerce, and Finance Committees. <coughs> Prior to joining the Senate, uh, Senator Nichols served as a Transportation Commissioner for eight years and as mayor of Jacksonville. To his left is Republican State Representative Jeannie Morrison, who has represented House District 30 since 1999. She currently serves as chairwoman of the House Transportation Committee and also sits on the Higher Education Committee and the Select Committee on Texas Ports, Innovation, and Infrastructure. In the 85th legislative session, uh, Representative Morrison was one of the authors of House Bill 100, which set statewide regulations on ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft. And to her left is, excuse me, uh, James, ba oops, yep. <laughs> uh, James Bass began his career with the Texas Department of Transportation in 1985. Since 2016, he has been the agency's executive director. Previously, he has held numerous roles at TxDOT, including Chief Financial Officer, Finance Division Director, Budget Analyst, and Accounting Clerk. And I'll add, right after this panel, uh, James will be joining the Texas A&M University mm -hmm. system for a brief meet and greet in the lobby just outside the ballroom upstairs. So you should all uh, try and check that out. And uh, if you have a highway project in your hometown, that's just <laughs> <laughs> James brought the checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> And next to him is uh, Alan Clark, who has been working on transportation and air quality issues for the Houston area for more than 30 years. He currently oversees transportation planning for the Houston-Galveston Metropolitan Planning Organization, which is responsible for developing the region's long-range transportation plans. Previously, Clark worked as a transportation planner for the Houston Metro and as a traffic engineering consultant. And finally, Will Connolly has, Connolly has been Hayes County Commissioner since 2004. He also serves as chairman of the Capital Area Regional Transportation Planning Organization, which develops long-term transportation planning for the Central Texas region. Additionally, Connolly serves on the, boards of, on the board of the Austin-San Antonio Intermunicipal Commuter Rail District and the Capital Area Council of Governments. Thank you all for being here. Uh, really do appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to be directing questions to specific panelists, but others can feel free to jump in. Uh, I want to start this conversation talking about the elephant in the room and at this festival, and that's Hurricane Harvey. Uh, three of our panelists here, uh, Senator Nichols, Representative Morris, Morrison, Mr. Clark, represent areas directly impacted by Harvey. So I want to start with the three of you. Um, how has Harvey impacted infrastructure in your communities? And I'm curious if it's perhaps led to any rethinking in your minds of how future transportation dollars should be spent in those communities. Uh, first of all, it's everybody knows how devastating it was. And since we were talking about transportation, we were talking about TxDOT today, I want to say that TxDOT has done an amazing job out there uh, getting the things back up, getting uh, vehicles moving. But they've also pitched in uh, quite a bit on the disaster recovery, uh, debris removal and stuff like that. And at the same time, knowing that a couple hundred of their own employees or homes are flooded. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, my 
on my south end of my district, I have 19 counties. 11 of the counties are uh, disaster uh, designated counties, six of which are pretty much went underwater. The infrastructure uh, uh, went underwater, is what basically happened. I think the road system for all that happened to it uh, held up very well. It's just you couldn't use it because of that. When you take a major corridor like you, Interstate 10, that feeds the entire south all the way down to Florida, uh, major uh, artery, uh, it was shut down for about six or seven days. Uh, any particular part of it for a couple of days, but it, the hurricane moved from west to east. And uh, they're down there, uh, I think I read a report where they, in the Houston area, uh, actually went out and inspected 3,700 bridges in a fairly short period of time. And so long term, they're going to be have to get inside those foundations and see just so much damage. But the roads, I think, held up pretty well. We've got two of my county, I've got two bridges still shut down in Liberty County, and I do not represent Chambers County, but I know that two of their state bridges are down there. But for all we got, I think they did an amazing job. So in your mind, the infrastructure um, could have been a lot worse in terms of how the infrastructure fared. I thought it really was going to be a lot worse. It's bad. It's going to be very expensive to fix and repair. But uh, 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 those things are built. Uh, they're very strong. Uh, we didn't have most of the district I had was more rainfall, mm -hmm. whereas uh, where Chairman Morrison's area, you got the actual fierce part of the storm, mm -hmm. the wind and stuff like that. So it's just different, mm -hmm. different areas. But uh, yeah. And Representative Morrison, your district includes Victoria. Well, right. My district, I, District 30, I have six counties that includes uh, DeWitt, uh, Victoria, Goliad, Refurio, um, Calhoun, and Aransas, which Aransas and Refurio is where uh, the storm came through. So I have Rockport in that area also. Uh, it was devastating um, where the storm came through. Uh, Rockport is devastated. Refurio County is devastated. We have a lot of... Um, damage in the other counties, but nothing like those two counties. Mm -hmm. uh, Texas has been awesome. I mean, they're helping with uh, debris removal in Aransas County. A week ago, Aransas County landfill was already full. And the county judges, what are we going to do with all this? And so Texas came in and they've designated an area off of 35 where debris is being taken and they're going to help with uh, a plan on how to dispose of it. But there's a lot more uh, everywhere. Uh, the major issues, of course, roads having water and wind coming through. Uh, there are some roads that are still closed, but I think, too, everything stood up very well. The good thing is we had a new bridge in Aransas County <laughs> that had just been completed, and uh, so, you know, great transportation back and forth, and actually it, w it was the only place that you could get cell service for a long time. Uh, you'd have to go up on the bridge to be able to get high enough to get cell service uh, before the temporary um, service was in because, of course, all the towers were down. But it's going to be a very long road uh, for recovery in those areas, and it's going to take a, a lot of time and planning, And uh, but everyone is doing a great job. I can't tell you how pleased I am with all of our state governments uh, and the federal government working together. There's going to be um, some new ways to help in that area for places to live. People don't have any place to live in Referia and Rockport. That's the biggest issue. And even if you could get a voucher from FEMA to go someplace, there's no place to go. All the hotels are closed. So you come to Victoria, all of our hotels are full. So anyone from that area has to go to San Antonio or 
uh, Austin or further away, of course, Houston has their own issues. So it, it's very devastating for the community and for the, the schools and what's, what's going to be going on down there for years. But as far as our infrastructure, I think our infrastructure is sound. We have a lot of uh, roads in some of our other areas that are city roads. Um, but I think our, our roads are, um, our infrastructure did very well through the storm itself. And I really thank TechStop for all that they're helping to do with recovery that's above and beyond what, uh, what their job is. Well, and Alan, so in Houston, I wonder, after what that city has been through in that, that region, uh, does that change how you, you know, uh, you see your job as a transportation planner going forward? <laughs> Well, first I want to start by just um, saying how much uh, I support the comments made about TxDOT's wonderful job by the senator and the representative. I think you, uh, TxDOT um, marshaled its forces from other areas of the state. If I remember right, we had two or 300 additional TxDOT employees in our area. I think Beaumont districts and Yoakum districts who are um, uh, Partially, part of their areas are represented on our policy council. They were also supported uh, by TxDOT. And um, one of the things that you can never underestimate, and certainly not undervalue, is the resilience of an organization like TxDOT to be able to change for what it does every day to uh, an agency that provides so much support for emergency response. Not only were they clearing debris, but they were rescuing people out of their uh, flooded houses with some of their high vehicles. Uh, they were working with our local governments hand in hand. We have a facility called Houston Transtar. I know the uh, number of people uh, in, the, in uh, our Houston district engineer that were living there practically uh, when they weren't out in the field uh, helping to look at um, how they could help speed up the recovery. So for an agency of the size of TxDOT, to be so nimble and resilient, James, is a huge compliment and a, a benefit that we can't measure in the state. Um, we um, have been thinking about some of the issues. Harvey just brought us to a whole new dimension of thinking about what could happen. Uh, hurricane events aren't new, uh, and, but what I have learned is that everyone is different. Uh, certainly, when we think about what happened to us with Ike, it was more like what happened in Rockport. Um, the storm surge was a major issue, and the winds destroyed Galveston, the city of Galveston, and many other of those coastal communities. This was a major flood event, and so, yes, we are, we are thinking um, a lot about how to respond to that. I also want to say that this is, our response is not likely to be all about what we build or building it differently. Some of it may be things that we don't do, areas that we shouldn't be developing in or developing in the same way, uh, ways in which we can mitigate uh, the flooding impacts. And there was a panel before this one that talked a lot about that, so I won't, I won't steal their thunder except to say that all those have to be um, things that, that we work into our thoughts, our planning as well. But uh, yes, we are, we are thinking a lot about the fact that some things we had planned to do anyway uh, could, for example, uh, providing um, managed lanes that are elevated perhaps above the freeway corridor 
might be lifeline facilities in an event like this because they'd be out of the flood area. Uh, how we would get to and from those in a flood event is something we might want to integrate into that thinking. So that's just one quick example. James, uh, even before Harvey hit Texas, there was a transportation conversation going on about evacuation and whether um, Houston should evacuate or the other cities around uh, the region, whether they should evacuate. And Rita, Hurricane Rita was brought up from 10 years ago and the deadly evacuation there, which was more deadly than the actual storm. Uh, and Mayor Turner decided not to evacuate Houston, which he took some criticism for. And it, I was wondering what you thought of that decision, knowing the transportation system around Houston so well. But also, if, if you agree with it, does that mean that a city like Houston just can never evacuate? So uh, the decision whether to evacuate or not obviously is a local decision, mm -hmm. whether the county judge or the mayor, and I'll leave that decision to them. <laughs> our, our job at TxDOT is to be ready and prepared if they do make mm -hmm. that decision. And we work with the Department of Public Safety and others. And so you know, we meet every year at the beginning of hurricane season, and oftentimes we're lucky enough that that, that work and that training and collaboration never comes into play but it, it did um, this year. Um, and so we would look for, so Interstate 37, there were some areas, I don't think Corpus ever evacuated, but um, Brockport, Port Aransas had some evacuation notices. Mm -hmm. And so on Interstate 37, we have what's referred to as an evacue lane. And basically it's the shoulder of the road, we get out and sweep it, and then it becomes a travel lane. And what I was told, as soon as we swept it, we didn't have to get the word out. It was being used. Um, but we never had to um, shift Interstate 37 to contraflow because generally speaking, that extra evac evacue lane and perhaps because of the number of people that were being evacuated, the speed on Interstate 37 was maintained around 50 miles an hour. And so it was moving people. It was performing as it should. In Houston um, area, again, like you said, they did not decide to do it, but we were looking, trying to stay ahead, um, well, if they do decide, are we going to do evacuate, are we going to do contraflow? And one of the issues, you have Interstate 10, which because of the storm and the path of the storm was not really much of a, an option. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you look at Interstate 45 and perhaps 290, there's a lot of construction ongoing in 290. And so the evacuate option would not have really, um, we don't think it would have worked well there. So we were looking and having early conversations with the Department of Public Safety about, you know, trying to move to the to contraflow. Um, again, I'll leave the decision to the local leaders. It's up to us and the other state entities to then be able to respond once they make that decision. Do you feel the network of highways and roads around Houston could have handled an evacuation of a city that big? The, I think it would be challenging, um, and it, some of it would depend upon how much notice, and mm -hmm. then you're always going to have a challenge of a plan and then introducing the plan into reality. Mm -hmm. And by what, what I mean by that is if you have a plan and you want to start evacuating certain zip codes and moving people and then other people are, you know, should wait to go, everybody's going to want to move at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, nobody's necessarily going to wait three or four hours once mm -hmm. the notice has been given, even if they're you know, in the third grouping of zip codes, right? Everybody's going to want to move at one time. And so it would be um, challenging, but I, I believe 
in some of our internal conversations. I think in 2008, we responded better than we did in 2005. I think in um, 2017, we responded better than we did in 2008. And when the next one hits, I think we'll respond even better than what we did this time because we are already in the middle of doing an after action review um, as a department of how we responded. And that's some of the things that we're looking at is contraflow, evacuation lanes, and as Alan said, kind of longer term, sorry to jump on, one of the, the new buzzwords um, in transportation is resiliency. And um, it really talks about can the infrastructure handle natural disasters and do you um, raise them, get them out of the way of doing that? And that's something you know, that we're looking at. I think obviously a lot of the floodplain that we look at, the 100-year floods have been redefined. And so we normally design around that. So we're going to be looking at that. We're going through an inventory right now of all the evacuation lanes um, uh, or routes where there's four lanes maybe going down to two. And hmm. so we're looking at that to address those bottlenecks. But that's really just one phase because four lanes, eight lanes, if it's underwater, it's underwater. Um, it doesn't matter how many lanes there are. And so then we're looking at which roadways have been underwater a few times over the last couple of years um, and how much water have they been under because as part of this response we um, purchased a tool if you will aquadam is basically just a, a large bladder it's a and you fill the bladder with water and you create a dam to help keep water off the road and it can keep up to I think roughly 30 inches off the road and so we deployed that in a number of areas, um, primarily in Houston and, and Beaumont. This was before the storm hit? No, it was really in the middle of the storm. Mm -hmm. um, and some of, the, some of the roads were already underwater. We put the aqua dam up, pumped it by using, filled it up with the flood water, and then pumped the water off the road to the other side of the dam, and were able to open the road up hours, if not days, sooner than we otherwise would have been. And so we, we purchased that a day or two into the event, but now we have seven miles of it. So the next time, yeah, we're ready. We, we bought a lot. The, the, we have seven miles of it, and so when there is the next event, we'll have that ready to go. My point being, some of the roads that have been under a minimal amount of water, we can keep that water off the roadway. But there are probably roads that had more than 30 inches that the Aquadam would not be a solution for. And so we're gonna be looking at um, and talking with our commission when we give this inventory, is that something where the travel lanes need to be elevated? And as Alan was saying, you know, if you have, a, if you have two bridges going over a river, the obvious choice is, yeah, you can raise both bridges, but maybe for half the cost, you, you raise one bridge, mm -hmm. and then in, a, in an event, you put both, directions of travel on that one structure and you have a way to merge them back once you're past the the river basin mm -hmm. and so we're we're looking at that and doing an inventory of those roads um, as we speak uh, will I wanted to get to you uh, Hayes County not directly impacted by Harvey but you get your fair amount of flooding uh, sure but you are also one of the fastest growing counties in the country uh, so I'm kind of wondering um, what what do you see as the biggest transportation challenges for Hayes County, and how has has flooding uh, been a kind of how, how has it flooding impacted how you plan for that? 
Well, uh, relevant to what we've been discussing so far, mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost, selfishly, we just feel blessed that we, we missed the, the flood events this time, uh, particularly uh, all my colleagues and communities here in Central Texas, but particularly in the, in the county and the precinct that I represent, uh, the uh, Memorial Day floods uh, went through three-fourths of my precinct. And uh, then Hayes County got hit again, all Central Texas got hit again with what we call the All Saints floods mm -hmm. of past fall. And we are just now coming to the end of our long-term recovery programs. And uh, I echo the same type of compliments to the state uh, as we worked hand in hand, have been for several years in that recovery. And we've done a wonderful job uh, delivering bridges over the Blanco that were completely lost in, in a few months. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, is the type of success we were able to have together uh, and, uh, and so since we pass at this time, all our resources now are going down to the Gulf along with all, our, all others in our community uh, to help them in a way, um, the way we were helped uh, during those situations. So that's what Texans do, that's what we do in our, in our communities. Uh, to your point, uh, we have some, uh, and Director Bass knows this, we've had some, some, some great discussions of the late. We have many projects in Hayes County and throughout Central Texas that uh, were, uh, you know, quarter way, halfway through the, the development process. And as we're going back and reevaluating our floodplains and, and analyzing what has occurred over the past couple of years, uh, we are finding areas where we must and should uh, make the proper improvements. Uh, the challenge with that is, of course, cost associated with that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these projects that were uh, uh, ready to go we rightfully are reevaluating, but then having to go and find additional funding uh, based off of our original estimates, off, off the old data, the old information. Uh, you know, Hayes County for the last, last few years has been the fastest growing county in America. Uh, the region between Austin and San Antonio uh, will, won't be recognizable within the next 10 years. Uh, those plans will be developed, are already developed, or will be developed within the next five. So uh, it's essential that uh, we keep uh, collaborating. I, uh, Commissioner Wolf and I spent a lot of time together this, this week uh, up in uh, Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, he, uh, Kevin is now the chairman of the Alamo MPO. I'm the current chairman of the Austin MPO. Uh, looking at, uh, at their history and their life experiences and, and lessons learned uh, for that corridor that goes east-west, ours goes north-south. Mm -hmm. Uh, very different places, uh, particularly from an environmental standpoint and from a flooding perspective, uh, but uh, uh, also a lot of similarities. And so uh, uh, we're doing our best to, to learn as much as we can, run a lot of parallel tracks of, of immediate project development, and uh, at the same time running on parallel tracks uh, corridor preservation and, uh, and uh, uh, all the different phases uh, that go along with project development. Uh, we do that working hand-in-hand -hand with the Austin District, with the San Antonio District, uh, with our administration at TxDOT and our state officials uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, uh, many of my colleagues have heard me say this before. One of the benefits, I think, see, I, I came into office, it's all a matter of perspective. I came into office in 2005, which were kind of the dark days of transportation funding. I don't, I don't know, I don't, and Senator can confirm that for me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the good days were like. So when I came into office, uh, uh, it was in the fastest growing region. Uh, it was, uh, you're going to have to come to the table with your own resources. We will leverage with you. 
uh, or, you know, or, or, or go home. And, um, and, and we did that in this region, and it's really paid off for us, and it's put us in a place now that our state leadership has, has given us some more opportunities for funding to really uh, uh, now accelerate that process and to uh, do our best to keep up with, uh, with uh, a community that has changed overnight. Well, and speaking of funding, I'd like to start again with our members of the legislature. Uh, it seemed like for several years, uh, Texas building roads was a lot of toll roads. And that seems to have slowed some bit. And I was just wondering from both of you, um, do you feel like we've reached kind of peak toll roads in Texas? Or is that an inevitable, we're going to have to go to that well more because just that's the As long as funding. we have the growth that we have in Texas, and we like that growth, we think it's very healthy, there's going to be a strain on the transportation infrastructure system. And it costs a lot of money. And it's a matter of each community deciding itself, you know, how long do I want to wait for a transportation project? So there's a lot of pain, I call it pain from congestion in some of the high growth urban areas. The state has done a great job, the people of the state coming forward uh, supporting two constitutional amendments and the legislature on finance putting in money and uh, so coming up with $5 billion a year more every year. Uh, and we're into those now. And so that's taken some pressure off. And, uh, but a community that, like the Austin region uh, and Hayes County and stuff, if you still have congestion and know you're going to have congestion for 10 more years, locally they need to decide whether they want to leverage the funds that are available to them. And I support that. So you go to another community and they choose they do not want the tow road. I, I support that. But, uh, the, the pressure is off. Uh, when we reached the dark days, as he was talking about, 2001 to 2005, when we hit that 2003 period, literally, and most people don't believe this, but it was true, that the revenues that TxDOT had coming in no longer could fund taking care of the roads. Literally, there was not enough money to maintain and take care and rebuild the uh, existing roads let alone add capacity in a high growth area. And so the, le the legislature began borrowing money. They tried to figure it out, but they kept kicking the can. And in a 10-year period of time, we borrowed, I say we, the state, uh, with people's approval, uh, $24 billion in, in that range. And we finally decided we're not going to borrow anymore. We're going to start funding this. And so two constitutional minutes later, it took some pressure off. Uh, each community will have to decide if it's that's what they want to do. Representative Morrison, anything you want to add there? Well, I mean, ditto with um, Chairman Nichols. Um, I, I don't think that you take any of the tools out of the toolbox. Mm -hmm. I, and I think I agree with him. It's up to the local communities. They can decide what they want to use, what they don't want to use, and let them decide because every Texas is huge. There are a lot of different issues, and we have some really fast growth places. And some of those places want to continue using toll roads, some do not. And I think that's up to what the local communities decide how they want to go forward and make sure that their citizens have the transportation that they need. So I think you, you need to keep all options open. I don't think you close down any options and let them decide. Uh, James, uh, so TxDOT has all this extra money coming in now. Uh, is it enough? 
So I don't, I'm not aware of any state program that would sit up here and say, yeah, we have, a, <laughs> we have enough money. money back. <laughs> yeah. So I think as you heard, the demands are, you know, infinite and the resources are limited. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm reminded of a uh, former commissioner who will go unnamed <laughs> that um, I was in the habit of telling we have enough money to do anything, but we don't have enough money to do everything. And I think even with the additional funding, that's still true. There's The needs are so great that um, I don't know that we're going to ever say that we're at 100%. I think our job at TxDOT right now is to show that we can execute on the money that has been given to us and then let the legislative leaders decide, okay, do they need, do they need and warrant more funding because they've shown what they can do with the money that's been provided. But, you know, as we look out to 2050, which I think is in the, the title of our session, um, the, you know, the population growth is not quite double, but pretty close to double in the state. Um, I don't know that we're going to be able to build twice the infrastructure that we have right now to, to handle it. I'm hopeful that we're not going to need to because of technology, right, and technology going into transportation, autonomous vehicles, delivering um, freight differently. Mm -hmm. But one of the challenges with the alternative fuel vehicles, kind of keeping in line with the revenue sign, is fuels tax. It's been, you know, a number one revenue source really since the early 1920s in, in Texas and even earlier across the nation. But, you know, we're seeing more alternative vehicles. I think Volvo in Europe just announced in 2020 they're not going to sell any um, anything but electric vehicles. And so as that fleet begins to change over, that revenue source is going to obviously begin to diminish. And then we have um, Prop 1 and Prop 7, again, that we're very thankful for and, you know, and need to deliver on, but they all have sunset dates on them, 2025 for Prop 1 and then 2029 and 2032 that can both that can be extended by the legislature. And so again, I think it comes back, it's imperative on TxDOT to show that we can deliver and spend that money wisely through the direction of our commission, that it's, you know, we can handle that, that workload and han handle it well. So you, um, you mentioned that the road network can't double by 2050 uh, and that the population, like is, that's you know, projections. Uh, is there any role for pu increased public transit in addressing that? Or is, is that more for something for the cities to deal with on their own and not at the state level? I think that's a question for the legislature when I've been asked that, <laughs> when I've been asked it before. Right? Well, no, I mean, yeah, we're, we're TxDOT, mm -hmm. but we're your DOT, and your representatives direct us on what they want us to be doing or not doing. And so that's really more of a, a policy question. And as you mentioned, you know, in our metro areas, they have taxing authority. They get their federal funding directly from the Federal Transit Administration. So from the funding side, the, the large metro areas in the state do not receive much, if any, funding from uh, the state legislature or through TxDOT. It's more in the smaller communities where um, their federal money flows through us and there's some state matching to it. But the, the overall answer is really more of a, a policy question. I, th I think he's asked you a question. So. 
<laughs> Me? Okay. I thought you were going to go all the way down. The um, the, like, as he said, it's a matter of what do we want to pay for and who's going to pay for it. Uh, is there a need? There's always a need. And Chairman Morrison said, you don't take anything off the table. You leave it all on the table. And uh, there will always be a need for mass transit. As our urban areas literally plug up, uh, there's an option there. Uh, whether it should be fixed or mobile uh, is a different uh, question. There's different opinions on that. I'm kind of a mobile guy because once you put fixed rail, then you've got either the town builds up that way or it doesn't. And then you, you can max out on those as well with intersections. Or, but each community is going to have to make that decision itself. And, uh, but uh, I was having an interesting conversation this morning with one of the transportation network companies that some of these big bus systems that run these big routes, and you see these buses, and sometimes there's <coughs> nobody in them, or there's two or three people in them. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's other ways to handle some of that stuff through the transportation network companies, mm -hmm. particularly late at night, instead of running an empty bus around town for two or three people. I think these companies are starting to talk to, like Uber and Lyft, talk to the transit companies, do voucher systems and things like that, take those big buses off and save uh, transit a ton of money so they can put it where it needs to go. Uh, Alan, uh, Houston, the fourth largest city in the country, uh, ha and you've actually had some success recently, well, before Harvey, in um, uh, boosting your bus system. And so I'm wondering, public transit's going forward, what role do you see that playing in Houston addressing its population growth? Well, let me, let me say it a little differently. Um, I have this conversation with our counties all the time. Um, they are now urban places. County governments are having to do the job that cities often have to do. And to a certain extent, this is happening um, across our state. As we talk about its future growth, that growth isn't spread out evenly across 254 counties. Uh, so it's going to be more and more urban. As a consequence, the way we invest and how we use the infrastructure that we have, uh, we have to think about that very carefully because we have to get more out of, of what we have. As the senator said, we can't just build twice as much of it. Um, and uh, an, an example of that is um, our area is known for lots of traffic crashes and bottlenecks, and all of you who've traveled there have experienced that. Uh, we've estimated at times that um, as much as 40%, uh, almost half of all of our delay might be due to crashes, stalled vehicles, that sort of thing. So if we could make a small investment to accelerate smart vehicles, which I hope will have be much safer because the driver won't be making quite as many decisions, if any, that might be a great investment for the state in actually improving mobility, let alone all the lives we could save and the expense we'd have from reducing crashes. Now, does that mean we need to have a slightly different infrastructure? So I think those are the questions we want to, to think about. One thing we're doing right now is um, even though Texas has a great road system, I mean, its condition, if you travel across the country, you know it's in great shape. But unfortunately, a lot of it was designed in the 1960s. And a lot of it gets tied up at interchange locations because we have forced weaving actions as we bring one freeway into another one. And TxDOT's doing a great job of rethinking how we should rebuild that infrastructure 
so that it actually works better. There's less conflict. We get more volume, more throughput on that system. So that's, that's some of the kinds of things I think that we have to do. And then the other part is um, making sure the infrastructure has the flexibility to, to change as the users change. Uh, we have uh, a lot of pedestrians and cyclists. Uh, used to be sort of an Austin thing. And now it's in Dallas and Fort Worth and Houston and San Antonio, and we see them everywhere. But we don't always have the best provisions for those users. Um, so TxDOT took an early lead in this uh, in adopting a smart streets type policy. And that means making sure that your uh, uh, roadway or complete streets, I said smart streets, they do both. But the complete streets policy is saying, let's look at all the users because sometimes it is um, a relatively small change in the infrastructure that makes it friendlier for uh, use by buses or by cyclists or by pedestrians. Now, we're not going to move 50 million people, I don't think, on bicycles. We're still going to have a lot of vehicles to do. But as vehicle automation begins to go forward, um, I think the strategic decisions for us are going to be things like, how can these be used by those vehicles? For us, it's not just the growth and people going to and from work or shopping. It's about freight. We are a port area as, as the representatives region is also a, um, a port area. So can we platoon trucks? Can we develop new roadway facilities or rebuild our facilities so that uh, using automation, these trucks can move through like a train, uh, as well as perhaps buses? In fact, I think that um, we may see a change in the future if when we become a state of 50 million people, we may see so much demand for travel and higher occupancy vehicles that this actually stops being just a public sector thing. If you talk to folks from other countries, sometimes they don't understand why we don't have more transit, because there it makes money. And it, and it could be a new kind of private public opportunity. So what am I saying? How, how are we going to build our roads so that we could accommodate those kinds of changes in the future? It takes us 20 years to do that. So we're going to be um, more than halfway to 2050 by the time some projects we're planning to build today are actually finished and open for traffic. That was my best non-answer. <laughs> you didn't hear a yes or a no in there anywhere, right? Um, well, uh, I'm going to open the open it up to the audience in a minute to get more non-answers. But, uh, but before I do, just one more question. Um, you mentioned uh, public-private partnerships and uh, trains. And there is a train co company been years in the making trying to build a bullet train from uh, Houston to Dallas that's backed by the Japanese government. Uh, I was wondering where anyone on this panel feels that project, if, if it's going to happen. I've heard talk that it may start construction next year. Uh, does, is it a real? Game changer for Texas? Should we be spreading this to other parts of the state? Like, I don't know, but Hayes County between Austin and San Antonio. Uh, I'll be happy to jump in. Um, I was opposed to it. I'm still opposed to it. Uh, Dallas might want it, Houston might want it, but that track in Berm is going to go through several hundred miles of uh, people's property and counties that they don't want it there. That's number one. Number two, uh, there's not a single bullet, plane, uh, bullet train on the planet that pays for itself. Every one of them are subsidized by taxpayers. 
this will be no different. They claim that they can build it without any taxpayer money, yet when you look at the business plan, the business plan incorporates between four and five billion dollars of a loan of taxpayer money from the federal government. There is no doubt in my mind that if they had the right of eminent domain, which they do not in my opinion, they could build it, construct it. The contractors and the suppliers will make a lot of money. We will have a berm, like a, a, a dirt uh, dam uh, all the way across Texas, and when it gets into the operating company, they will financially collapse because you cannot operate it and pay the billions of dollars back. And then they're going to come to the legislature or the communities in between and say, oh, gee whiz, we, the numbers look good 10 years ago, but it doesn't work, and now what are we going to do? And now we've got that thing 200 miles long uh, cutting Texas in half. So now you know how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyone else want to jump in? Oh. I mean, I'll jump in. We, you know, we looked at it during the legislative session in the House. We did pass two bills that state funding was not going to be used. And so it's a private company, and I think that they're proceeding on and trying to get everything together. I did have the opportunity um, last fall to go to Japan and ride the bullet train mm. over there on an economic development uh, with an economic development group, and it's pretty impressive. Their safety record is, uh, is wonderful. I mean, there's just not an issue with that. And so I think we let uh, private enterprise see what they can do. I'll, I'll say, uh, uh, you know, for those of us here in Central Texas, I believe uh, certainly for the short and the midterm, our, our transit solution is going to be uh, more bus-oriented than rail-oriented. And uh, we need to do our best to have dedicated lanes for those buses to take advantage and to continue to develop our managed, our managed lane system um, so that we can offer things like guaranteed transit and, and make it a better service than what it, it is today. Beyond those that just don't have any other means and other options, uh, how do we get the middle class worker off the road and into one of these type facilities that you have to provide a better service? Uh, if you're going to sit in a bus and traffic with everybody else on I-35, I think most of us rather just sit in our own vehicle. Uh, but if you're blown by everybody, uh, going to from San Marcos, Texas to, to downtown Austin at a guaranteed time, I think that's where you break that barrier and you get into a much broader section of people that will then start taking those options. And we are developing those plans uh, uh, here right now. A lot of those plans are being developed. A lot of the work you see being done on 35 today here in Austin is already pulled in those, those designs and those, those ideas and those options. Uh, so, so we're moving forward in that direction. I think to... Uh, uh, some of the private opportunities. I think that has to be uh, closely coordinated with the public sector. Uh, uh, ideally, uh, you know, there should be, we should look more at our current right-of-way and our current corridors, the public's corridors, than Greenfield Project, Senator running across, you know, very, very rural counties and counties that have different perspective. I think First and foremost, we should go through all those options. I think we have a tremendous amount of opportunity on what we already publicly own. Uh, plus, I believe uh, uh, we, could, we could plan that better and we can manage that better and have the proper oversight and in partnership. Uh, but the private sector uh, has to be part of the solutions for the state of Texas moving forward. 
uh, like our colleagues have said uh, from the beginning, uh, we don't have the ability right now or the option to take anything off the table. Anybody that says otherwise can't do basic math and does not know the demands that are being put, particularly on the triangle uh, in our state. And so uh, uh, it takes a lot of planning, a lot of foresight, a lot of collaboration, but uh, I feel good where we're heading in Central Texas and, and where we are in our state, and, and um, we'll just keep, keep trying to do our best to solve those problems. Thank you. Is there any questions from the audience? Oh. Hi, I've lived in Austin now for five years, and when people talk about traffic, I always find myself wondering why nobody thinks about the third dimension. Why don't we have zip lines or aerial trams or something, not railroads, but something that is going through the air, taking people to where they need to go? Is that just crazy impossible from an engineering viewpoint? So I know that Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority, which is not on the panel, but there was, there was some discussion of looking into the feasibility of doing a tram kind of down Congress mm -hmm. Avenue, I think. Yes, sir. I'm looking at that, and I'm not sure where, where they currently are in that process, but I know it was a discussion point sometime probably about a year ago when they were looking um, at that and looking at doing a feasibility study. You know, kind of to my point, just a while ago, about getting the most of our, out of our public right-of-ways and our public infrastructure. I, at least here in Central Texas, and particularly in Austin and Travis County, there's not a whole lot, a whole lot uh, of room in width. So if you're going to continue to develop infrastructure, in lots of circumstances, you're going to have to go up or down. And, uh, and I think you look at all those situations on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and, and, and see what is feasible and realistic. We've, we've tried to have a real discussion, particularly in the last two years in Central Texas, about, about uh, you know, let's, we want to think big, but let's also, let's get out of the clouds and let's try to have a, a real discussion on, on what we can develop, what we can fund, what we can afford, and how we're going to move people and keep growing our economy and protecting our environment. So those discussions are ongoing on a daily basis. Uh, I recall when I was on the commission, uh, someone I worked with someone who was look, looking at doing that. They were really looking at the west side of town, kind of along the Mopac route, uh, uh, some of those expansions where the train is over there. And that's kind of what he was going to do. He was going to use the existing right of way and go up and have like a tram. Uh, and, and it just, he couldn't make it work. Too much cost to build it? Uh, it's just going to who's going to pay. And the private industry. Uh, couldn't run the numbers and make it work, and there's no regular state funding or federal funding for something like that. He studied it. It looked at it. It looked very interesting to me. It's why I spent time talking to him about it. Uh, it just couldn't make it work. But the other elevated idea actually was implemented on I-35. Uh, if you go on the north side of the river, you know, there's an elevated highway up there. And if you kind of follow the history of that, all of a sudden, if there's no room to go widthwise on 35, why not go up? And so TxDOT actually did design a whole new set of freeways headed through 35 all the way across the river and out up in the air. And the community protested it so much after it was under construction, they lowered it back down. So that's why you see it go up and come down. <laughs> because the community objected to it. 
after it was under construction. Yeah, otherwise it would have already been elevated and built all the way across. Yeah, you got the Chicago L up there. Yes, um, well, first of all, I just wanted to follow up on your question. I know someone who's working on a gondola system for Austin, so you should come talk to me. Um, yeah, uh, so I don't know how far along he is, but I'll connect you to him. Um, my question, so I'm with Earth Day Austin, Janice, and um, my question is, it, 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 w at the state level and the decision-making process, to what extent is carbon emission reduction a priority as opposed to traffic, for example? Because you know, when you look through those lenses, you see different solutions. Uh, and um, with, with climate change being such an urgent issue, um, I, I wonder about how much that is a state priority in these conversations. And I understand from a legislative perspective, there's all that, right? But in terms of at TxDOT, like what is that? Or I mean, anywhere, what does that look like? What are the, how much does it, is it prioritized? So, yeah, I think I'll defer to the two MPOs because my belief is on the federal level, they have to do um, air modeling before you can add capacity mm -hmm. to, the, to the freeway. And there's a funding category called congestion mitigation air quality that's kind of based around that. But they, so in the metropolitan areas, they have to do traffic and air quality monitoring as they're doing their planning, which basically, I think, gets to your question. But most of that happens at the MPO level. Yeah, so what we are, our area is a designated non-attainment area. I know you understand what that means. We don't meet federal standards for one of the criteria pollutants. In our case, it's ground-level ozone. The, um, uh, we don't have a um, standard or a designation for carbon emissions reductions at the federal level. And it's not a pollutant which all in, all in by itself, uh, we have a, an ability to say, well, we're going to specifically target uh, these funds for carbon emissions reductions, and, and, and that alone makes it eligible. So what we are doing is looking at projects that have multiple environmental benefits. And fortunately, many of the things that you're talking about have a connection. So congestion certainly bad for air quality. Um, the case of congestion, uh, we have a, a program where we're trying to quickly remove stalled vehicles off the freeway. That helps us with safety. It helps us with congestion. It helps us with air quality. We actually do, though, uh, have a program uh, not funded entirely from transportation, but also from uh, EPA and other sources to target high emissions vehicles. And actually, we buy them and scrap them, and then we help that vehicle owner get into a low emissions vehicle. And it could be natural gas or it could be some other technology. So um, because of the mandates under the Clean Air Act, we're very focused on the reduction in um, emissions that can contribute to, um, to our uh, ozone problem. And, and a lot of carbon emissions, volatile organic compounds are factors in that. So um, I guess what I'm saying is, uh, we, are, we are working on this. It's a little bit through the back door. Uh, and quite frankly, um, sometimes I think we get in the way of things. Um, short term, more natural gas use could be very helpful in reducing certain kinds of carbon emissions. And I know you want to calculate the total from how you got it out of the ground to when you burn it. But um, 
compared to using gasoline or diesel fuel or other things. Uh, we can reduce particulate matter, which we're okay on right now, but uh, we'd like to see, uh, we're trying to strongly encourage not only um, uh, use of natural gas, but electrification. And, and those are consistent with the use of the federal funds that have been set aside. The, the um, limitation is it has to be used principally within non-attainment areas. Uh, so uh, I will say that other communities in the state have voluntarily adopted goals and targets. And um, many of those will be consistent with some of the things we're trying to do on the transportation side. Uh, so I, I, I wish I could tell you that it's, it's a more direct set of linkages in that. We are, though, uh, trying to uh, run the numbers so that we understand the full range of benefits we're getting, not just from the one uh, particular thing we're trying to target, but from the range of pollutant uh, benefits that we're getting from those, those different strategies. Um, I, I think that vehicle technology, uh, higher um, uh, fuel economy standards, alternative fuels, especially electrification, are going to move the transportation industry into a much greener position than it's ever been before. Uh, what we, I think, need to do is just figure out how we can um, encourage that to happen. I don't know if passing a lot of laws to make it happen help. The economics are there to make a lot of it happen. You might want to comment on that, too. Sorry, I, I was also going to say, I thought he was going to mention it. Uh, on your, your heavy haul trucks, going through the big freeways and stuff, the diesel rigs uh, are real bad emitters. Yes. Uh, uh, and so there's a paradigm shift going because of the technology using natural gas. And so these big trucks and the big fleets of trucks, as well as the stations, the fueling stations, are switching to uh, compressed natural gas or liquefied natural gas, and the amount of emissions is greatly down. And the state of Texas has stepped in using TERP money and stuff like that to incentivize the creation of these uh, uh, filling stations because they don't want a filling station. Nobody's going to invest in a filling station for that if there's no trucks. Nobody's going to buy those trucks if there's no filling stations. So it's a catch, you know, chicken and egg. And so we as a state stepped in along the triangle, and, you know, uh, first. But now we, we've, session after session, we've been spreading that. And I... It's amazing what's going on in that industry, and I will tell you, within, in my opinion, within 10 years, 70% of the fleet will be uh, natural gas. Hmm. Over here. So uh, I know there was some discussion of public-private partnerships and how that is going to be so crucial to Texas's growth going forward, um, and I wanted to, to touch on Senator Nichols' concern about um, taxpayer money being spent on the potential proposed Dallas-Houston bullet train. So my question is, what leverage does the state and localities really have to hold private entities accountable for their role in these partnerships, um, not just you know in the planning period, but after they've begun and after they're completed? So maybe if I can start you one example that we have in place is State Highway 130, a portion of State Highway 130, which is east of Austin, the northern part of that, which operates as a toll road, is owned and managed by TxDOT. But from State Highway 45 Southeast for 41 miles south until it intersects with Interstate 10 is a public-private partnership. And um, that was entered into around 2008. 
$1.3 billion um, facility that was all funded by the private sector for session after session. I heard um, that, well, once they issue the debt, the state's going to be responsible for the debt. No, nope, wasn't true. Um, and that the state was going to you know, be on the hook if, they, if it failed. Well, that roadway, the reason I pointed it out is that roadway went through bankruptcy um, in the last 18 months. And their traffic projections were more optimistic than what the state had when we looked at it. They went forward and, and built it. The state received $140 million up front. We, got, um, we get a nickel out of every dollar they collect. They do have um, maintenance requirements that the road needs to be maintained to certain levels. If they don't do that, we as the state have the right to step in and fix the, the safety issue and then charge them for it. But the, the main point I wanted to make is they went through that um, bankruptcy. The state didn't kick in a penny. The road remained open the entire time and people continued to have an option if they wanted to travel on the toll road and pay those tolls, they continued to have that option. And so I think if you structure the, the contract well, because it's all going to come down to the contract, whether it's for the next 30, 40, or 50 years, it's going to come down to the, the contract. And I think for State Highway 130, we had it um, well-built and developed contract that as it went through that financial stress of bankruptcy, the state was not on the hook. And so the yeah, there's the Transportation Infrastructure Finance Innovation Act, TIFIA loan by the federal government. And um, there's another road that TIFIA had gone through in California. Um, and I think, I know in California and I think here what the U.S. government basically did is rather than getting all of their money paid back in 30 years, they've extended the life of that debt in order to receive all of their money back but over a longer period of time. So I don't think that the U.S. government has recognized a loss. The equity people, the people who invested their money hoping for a rate of return, they've lost every dollar. Um, some of the debt holders who had loaned them money, not equity, but had loaned them money, they took a loss on it because the new investors kind of bought them out on pennies on the dollar. The concern you expressed, sir, uh, about somebody who was on the hook, and it's the U.S. taxpayers, that's what I was concerned about on the bullet train, because I believe, I truly believe that's what will happen. I mean, I believe they have said they'll, they expect to make some federal loans. I don't know if it's exactly four to five, Four to five billion, yes, that program. Well, we are out of time, but I want to thank uh, our panelists for a great session. <laughs>